Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Don't touch the dog. It just ain't right. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we are going back to our roots. How excited are you to talk about zoophilia? So excited, Tamler. <laughs> I was actually thinking, uh, I wonder if we went back and listened to some of those early conversations on zoophilia, whether our attitudes have evolved. Yeah, no, it was, uh, I think you go back to episode one and we're talking about free will. And, and of course, no free will, why can't I just fuck my dog? You know, that's right. So, and for a, a, a long time, people thought, well, for moral reasons, but uh, but not anymore. And the second segment, we're going to oh. talk about part of our, uh, I don't know, like ongoing series on papers that then became famous books. But we just <laughs> do the original papers, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, because that, that's when they were authentic. Then they sold out for the book. Um, and also because they're well, uh, significantly shorter. Also, like, yeah, yeah. The, there's pragmatic reasons. But I also am sort of the opinion that most of the time, most books should just be magazine length articles. Yeah, long like, like, People stretch. Yeah, people stretch them out into books because, you know, they want books. Speaking of stretched out, the things <laughs> that are stretched out, uh, a new article submitted, like this almost seems like it was too designed for, for us. Like the no, simulation I... people are like getting sloppy or they're, they got drunk or something like that. But it is, first of all, in the <laughs> journal, it appeared in the most recent issue of the Journal of Controversial Ideas. Um, the yeah. Peter Singer edited uh, journal that uh, we talked about and even did a whole segment on coming up with fake abstracts for. Do you remember that? That's right. I had forgotten. <laughs> the, this article, I think it's very self-explanatory from the title, Zoophilia is Morally Permissible by yeah. Fira Benstow. And that is a pseudonym. I don't know why, but... okay. So yeah. I first thing I want to ask you is uh, sh this person could have got, come up with a better pseudonym than this. This was just I feel like this was phoned in. I wonder if it's like code. Like if you unscrang, it's like an anagram for like. I, I was wondering hot, that too. And like, then I thought. Lab sex or something. <laughs> I'm, pu I'm putting your name into the Wu-Tang Clan name generator. Okay. Your pseudonym from this day forward is Fortunate Magician. Huh. Okay. <laughs> Seems like that would have been more appropriate for you, but... Yeah, uh, I know, damn it. But then it wouldn't have been a good pseudonym, I guess. 
Like that's for true. me, people know I can't do magic. So it's like, well, we know it's not Tamler. That's that's for sure. You know. Um, but you know what? You can do zoophilia. So this is apparently funny. if the argument <laughs> presented in this article is sound. All right, this is very funny because it is written out of the analytic philosophy writing for dummies uh, handbook. It hits all the different notes. Like if this is a hoax, there. The commitment to the bit is really impressive. I don't think, for the record, it's a hoax. But if it is, I really appreciate. Yeah, like you said, there are uh, it hits all the things we make fun of, but it also hits the things that I like about good philosophy. So, like, I am actually, (laughs) I know we're gonna make fun of of the paper because there are some sentences that calling out to us to be made fun of. But I actually think this is a good paper. The topic is, uh, well, we can talk about why the topic, why it's, it just on the face of it seems like it has to be uh, a hoax because it seems so ludicrous. But I think there's something to this that, that needs to be tackled. And I think this is, does a good job as, as a paper could um, to tackle it. Um, The footnote, by the way, for the pseudonym is the topic is so socially sensitive that I write under a pseudonym out of fears of negative repercussions on my career and private life. Even if I do not engage myself in zoophilia. That's cryptic. Now, that's phrased in a really weird way. (laughs) I was just thinking that. A philosopher phrased that. Just remember that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It is very much like probably consistent with they do engage in zoophilia, but it makes it sound as much as possible like... You know, I'm not yeah. one of these sickos, but uh, <laughs> yeah. this would still be uh, bad for my career. It's yeah. it's the equivalent of having their fingers crossed behind their back. <laughs> yeah, it's the footnote equ- equivalent of that. So it starts just motivating the topic, as you would want to do. Sex with animals is a powerful social taboo that exposes its practitioners to utmost indignation and stigma. I love this. Zoophilia is one of the few sexual orientations, along with e.g. necrophilia or pedophilia, that remain off limits and have been less left aside from the sexual liberation movement in the past 50 years. It's like, I don't get it. Like now, like gay people and, and lesbians, yeah. that's okay. But like, we're, you know, what about the zoophiles? Yeah. Um, Nobody invited me to the alphabet party. Yeah. I would like to argue that this is a mistake. Very straightforward, like clear thesis statement. There is, in fact, nothing wrong with having sex with animals. It is not an inherently problematic sexual practice. So that's the uh, opening uh, paragraph. He then, I'm saying he, like, (laughs) what do you think the honest percentages are that this is a woman writing this? Uh, 0.3. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. You don't want to like completely rule it out. Although uh, I have a story. Yeah, I have a story that makes me add the point three in there. Um, okay. I that, hear I, that I don't story. know that I told. <laughs> I do <laughs> feel like I've heard it, but maybe not on the podcast. But yeah, like I don't, I don't remember it. So so then they give an outline uh, where they first talk about what zoophilia is. Then they sort of go over the uh, uh, history of the debate on the permissibility of zoophilia. And then they get to the meat of the of the objections, um, the objection that this is harmful to animals or that animals can't consent. And uh, they they try to mount uh, uh, some arguments that they can defeat these objections. And then they list the possible implications if we accept that it's not morally impermissible. 
now that I think about it, like I've had a crazy day, so I haven't had time to like try to think of what your reaction it would be. But now that I think of it, like of course you're going to actually like this paper. You know? <laughs> but just for the analytic philosophy of it, the arguing for a counterintuitive conclusion, this is uh, catnip for you. Uh, it really, even if you do not engage yourself in zoophilia, like you're, even, you find this compelling. <laughs> even if. Yeah, but I but I think that um, unlike some of the convoluted things that we've read, I think that the arguments are ones that legitimately um, engage with yeah. the arguments that people have made against. And and I think that that you really would have to like. I'm not you know I'm not going to say that I'm convinced with the conclusions, but um, I've thought about these these before. I mean, it started with uh, the. And I think this is what we talked about originally, way back in the day, the Singer article on on bestiality, um, and maybe even Will Salatan, who had a, an article in Slate about the Singer view. Um, did we talk uh, about that? I think we did, because I remember it had like a clever, a clever title that I can't remember right now. But the the traditional arguments, at least, I always thought were a little weird if you were okay with killing and eating animals, and that, right. that's. A big if, I guess. That's right. But, but that familiar, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shag the dog. That was the name of the Will Salatin article. Shag the dog. <laughs> Shag the dog, yeah. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's very good. I just want to, like, not skip over, like, I don't want to rush through just some of the writing thing uh, <laughs> that that's in this. By zoophilia, I mean human engagement. So he just defines his terms, right? By, by zoophilia, I mean human engagement in romantic and or sexual relationships with non-human animals. There's somehow, like, three, three footnotes, like, <laughs> in that one sentence. We can distinguish between zoophilic activities, the term bestiality being sometimes used to refer to the activities and zoophilic orientation understood as a general attitude or of romantic and or sexual attraction to some animals as an orientation sometimes referred to as zoosexuality zoophilia can be compared to other orientations such as heterosexuality or bisexuality they should these uh orientations be distinguished from mere fetishes this basic definition calls for several comments I like that it calls for is just, uh, <laughs> is my favorite thing. Like, like this needs to be said now, given that definition. It is the juxtaposition of formal talk with the content of the talk is yeah. is quite like uh, entertaining um, <laughs> to people like us. But here's where I was. Okay, so of course, like then, like they cover a whole bunch of different acts. But then he says, second, I leave open the possibility for zoophiles to engage only in non-sexual activities, such as displays of affection or caring behaviors, but it's sexual activities that are usually considered to be morally problematic. So most of my arguments will concern sexual activities. And well, I had good. never considered that zoophilia, uh, that zoophilic activities might be like bringing your dog flower <laughs> flowers <laughs> after a fight. <laughs> I mean, I do, like, if I feel like my dog has been going through a rough stretch for whatever, like, I'll, I'll go and get, a, like, a rawhide or some, like, uh, you Dude, know. With, with a romantic inclination? Well, it's like, what is romantic at that point? Like, how I is it romantic know. and non-sexual? Uh, this is why it calls for, this calls it calls, for comments. Several, calls, not just one, several. <laughs> 
the ethics of zoophilia has been subject to little academic attention so far. <laughs> it's one of those, like, surprisingly. Uh, surprisingly. <laughs> research has uh, neglected zoophilia in uh, the, the general the sexual liberation movement. Uh, <laughs> what do you make? So, <clears throat> so they go on to, uh, to talk about, like, estimates of the prevalence of, of zoophilia. So they list some <laughs> this is some studies based on yeah. So where where people asked like back at, back in the day, Kinsey asked people a whole bunch of questions, and they found that eight percent of male and three point five percent of the female U.S. populations had had at least one sexual interaction with an animal in their life, with a percentage exceeding fifty percent in some rural locations. <laughs> like, uh, come on now, like I think we're. <laughs> Playing into certain stereotypes here. This is why they vote for Trump is if we're going to be like doing this. I think this has been, this statistic has been debunked, um, to be honest. Um, Uh. One of the things that might be accounting for that high number is like, if you have to like actually, you know, milk a horse to breed it, like, and you put that that was a sexual activity, like, you know, like. But do you think you would do that if you... It depends how they asked it. You know, if they asked, have you ever touched an animal's genitals to the point of arousal or something? Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, they're not going to lie. They're honest, hardworking people. Just they're honest, hardworking people. More recent surveys suggest 2% of the general population find the prospect of having sex with animals to be sexually arousing. I worry, I do worry that this is more common than anybody wants to admit. Yeah. And if it is, in fact, more common than people want to admit, then there are a lot of people who live in, like, terrible shame and guilt. Um, like the person I talked about way back in the day, like the student who had emailed me um, about their behavior. That's right. Remember that? Yes. I forget if you said it on the podcast. You want to give, like, the yeah, Cliff Notes I did. version? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Cliff Notes version is that one of my first years at Cornell, I got an email from a student well, I assume it was a student. It was a non-Cornell account. I certainly wasn't like known to like, I, I was pre-podcast day, so I wasn't famous. Like now. Exactly. Yeah. So I can only assume that it was a student who who had heard about me at Cornell, emailed me and said, hey, what do you think about the moral status of, of bestiality zoophilia? And I sort of just gave like a, a real quick answer with a link to actually the Salatan paper. And then they emailed me a couple more times following up saying, no, like I really want an answer. They said, I have a friend who, who engages in this behavior. And then finally they just said, look, it's me. Like I've been having sexual contact with my dog for years now. Like I consider myself as having lost my virginity to the dog. There was nothing in that email that makes me think they were like, you know, like punking me, but they were, they weren't punking me or anything. Like it seemed like a real sincere troubled person. And I think my response was something like, I actually like strictly speaking, if all of the things that they said were right, that the dog had like initiated contact and that like (laughs) seemed to derive pleasure from it, like it was all kinds of things. Um, I said like, if all that's true and there's no harm, like I strictly speaking, I don't think it's, it's morally wrong. But like, I think something you should probably do something about it, like see somebody, because the way that that our societal conventions are like, this says something like kind of wrong. Like, like, would you want your daughter dating somebody who fucked their dog or like, (laughs) so I can say uh, personally, no, but uh, (laughs) 
even pre- after this pre- paper? <laughs> even after this paper, I would be like, you know, preferably yeah. not. I don't know if it would be a, a deal breaker. But <laughs> what's prefer- interesting is that he they want to define it as non fetish, um, and they they say a fetish has to do with with non genital body parts or non like inanimate objects or something. And isn't that baking it in? Like, isn't even calling it a social orientation baking into it some sort of acceptance? Yeah, of, I think that's right. Yeah. Like, so that's probably why. Like, fetishes are just these weird things, some of which are okay. But uh, yeah, when you call it an orientation, I do think you're trying to put it with all these other kinds of orientations that we have um, come to think are actually fine. And we used yeah. to think they were deeply wrong or sinful. And so, you know, like, I think that's fair enough. Like, I, yeah. I'm not sure I would put it there, but like, I could see why you would want, if you were really defending the view, why you would not want it be dis, uh, to be dismissed as a fetish. And, and in, yeah. in some ways, maybe it really isn't a fetish in the sense that I think some people, people like your student, maybe like they, it's like really important. Like it's a real relationship. Yeah. 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 And that is, yeah. And the author l- later on will distinguish people who who are attracted to animals versus ones who, like, as a convenience, use animals for sexual um, pleasure. I um, do, I do wonder about, you know, I don't think this article talks very much about animals initiating, but like it does yeah. talk a lot about animals consenting, which I feel like we, like, I don't know if they cited us, but I feel like we uh, <laughs> kind of had a pretty definitive discussion of consent at least in chimpanzees but (laughs) (laughs) do you remember that like if they sign it yeah (laughs) but like initiating it seems even more than consent i mean they might like start humping your leg or something like that but i don't know if that's oh i want us to have sex like right now i want you to like stick your penis in my ass right well that's a whole different level um (laughs) Let's start with Alice and her dog, okay? Oh, yeah. So Consider the following case. (laughs) Alice self-describes as being in a romantic relationship with her dog. She cares a lot about his well-being and strives to ensure that his needs are fulfilled. This sounds like a John Hyde dilemma. Yeah. Um, They often sleep together. (laughs) He likes to be caressed, and she finds it pleasant to gently rub herself on him. Sometimes when her dog is sexually aroused and tries to hump her leg, she undresses and lets him penetrate her <laughs> vagina. This is gratifying for both of them. <laughs> How can we not? There's no way I can make it through this paper without that. <laughs> uh, um, off. Just go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, we can uh, take 10 minutes after this segment <laughs> if you want. Our voice comes back sounding weird and different. Uh, Flushed. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, Alice's story describes a kind of relationship commonly described within the Zeta movement, which apparently is the zoophilia, yeah, uh, where there is a yeah, where there's a reciprocal emotional attachment between the human and the animal, and sexual contacts are sexually gratifying to both of them. It is tempting to think that Alice's relationship illustrates one way in which humans can develop more equal and non-exploitative relationships with <laughs> animals that go beyond our negative duties not to harm them. And, and then they go on to say, what is it that makes affectionately caressing one's cat of a different ethical standing than sexually caressing one's cat? If there is no clear cut boundary between the ordinary love that pet keepers express and the romantic love that some zoophiles express, then why accept one and not the other? Yeah. And then you get dragged in 
Before I turn my attention to the objections that have been raised against zoophilia, I should point out that I am not interested here in the psychological and social factors that explain our ordinary, deeply misguided, he doesn't say that, but right. ordinary aversion to zoophilia. The Though source I, of our bias. Yeah. yeah. Though I suspect that such factors permeate most attempts at proving that zoophilia is wrong. But, you know, that's ad hominem. I'm not going to. Uh, I leave that to to social scientists and psychologists. So there you go. A new project, a new field. Uh, Little little work has been done. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I'm sure there's evolutionary psychology papers about this, right? I don't. I I don't know. I I wonder. Um, uh, Yeah, it turns out it's not a very evolutionary successful strategy. (laughs) No, but you know, Uh, can't hurt to try. (laughs) <laughs> Somebody had to find out. Um, all it all it gets you is like the island of Doctor Moreau. <laughs> Even for subjects that have received little attention, uh, academic attention thus far, there's usually something about it in evolutionary psychology. You know? <laughs> That's true. That's true. So right. here's where I so got to tell you that that this anecdote. So I knew a person, a woman, who was not from the U.S. and was weirdly open about like her sexual history, like um, the activity she engaged in. She clearly was like not, especially at that time in my life, like I'd never heard anybody be that straightforward about about sexuality. She was from a, one of these countries, so one of these like Northern European countries where everything goes. And she once said, um, as we were walking to a coffee shop, she said, I sometimes let my cat lick my pussy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) And she said, yeah, you know, sometimes when I'm like, I sleep naked and she has a cat, obviously. And sometimes like the cat's under the covers and I'll wait. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's what I thought. I'll wake up to the cat licking me down there and I won't stop it. And she made it sound like she actually like could have an orgasm that way. That's initiating. Now, yeah. So there are some, and, and like this author will make, go on to say like, look, I'm not saying every instance of zoophilia is right. Just like there's no, you can't say every instance of any other kind of sex is right. Um, but there are some clear cases where I think you can rightfully rule out harm and yeah. you might even genuinely be able to bring consent in or some form of assent, whatever you want to call it. So do you think it is the scratchy tongue, like like one of those condoms with the little things, you know, like sticking out <laughs> for of her, rib, not for her rib, pleasure. Yeah, for her pleasure kind of thing, you know? Like I, maybe I mean, you not being the owner of female genitalia, I cannot imagine <laughs> what that must be like, but I I didn't think good. I didn't I didn't uh yeah. Wow. Uh, clearly she disagrees, but, um, yeah, like that's a good, that should be his, uh, case too, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. like the consider that another case, uh, the consider the, the cunnilingus cat, <laughs> <laughs> cunnilingus kitty, yeah. cunnilingus kitties. So he considers the two things, the two main objections, right? Harm, you're harming the animal and then you are failure to get failing to get consent and finds both of those objections to be wanting. Um, the, the idea of harm, he's like, look, sometimes they're harmed, but yeah. what critics of zoophilia need to show is that harm is a necessary feature of sex with animals. This is yeah. a very demanding claim, which seems patently false at first glance. Go look at Alice. Uh, at, no, who's, at whose first glance? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so Al- Alice and her dog, they both love it. You know, yeah. uh, your friend and the cat, they yeah. both love it. You know, sometimes there's positive evidence that the animal is having a pleasant experience. And they, what's they're the like positive doing a good... evidence there? Do you think? <laughs> well, <laughs> did the dog finish? You know. Yeah. Was, was, were were there any right. cream pies involved? <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh, we might even cream have to pies. Like, that'll <laughs> be part of the like the meta analysis. <laughs> <laughs> So with with my friend and her cat, it's unclear whether the cat was doing anything other than like, you know, do, doing what cats do, like lick right. things that they were salty or something. But with a dog, like this is clearly a sexual um, reflex that it's having. It's initiating. And they do a good job of coming up with these examples that where it's not men penetrating animals. Because I think that's the first thing people think. And so they think like, look, you're sticking things uh, like up the ass of an animal like that. Of course, that's harmful. But there are uh, cases that that are not that. So I always have this thought whenever I'm confronted with something like this, that the world is way weirder when it comes to this kind of stuff than I could imagine. Like I'm a I have fairly vanilla tastes. And yeah. I'll run into someone at a conference and they'll just say, yeah, like I go to this dungeon and like <laughs> hang upside down and like it's the most intact. And I'm like, whoa, OK, yeah, I, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. But why, uh, why are you bringing Josh Nob into this? I, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to say, say the name. Yeah, no, it's true. Like and, and again, I don't know what like I know that this kind of behavior occurs. So like that's why I think that, look, of all the things that we laugh at Journal of Controversial Ideas, um, this is like maybe an actually relevant, maybe it's wrong and misguided, but it's actually relevant to some percentage of the population. Yeah. Um, it's not just mental masturbation and of the worst kind. It could be that like, like people look back at this episode, like 50 years from now and they're like, they're such monsters that they're making fun, <laughs> they're making fun of this, you know? Oh, I thought you were going to say they're such moral heroes for having been open to these arguments. Well, yeah. Um, you know. uh, or just that, that, that Tamler, the Jewish guy. Uh, <laughs> All right. We're going to get way more feedback on this than on anything we said about Israel. By the way. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wait, Omar, no, quiet. Because now I have, the green, I have the green light right now. So just <laughs> like, you might want to th- uh, think about fucking up the podcast. Yeah. You know what, Tyler? Sometimes woof means no. <laughs> <laughs> Not according to Fira Benstow. <laughs> okay, um, no, that's okay, so actually, there's the harm. Uh, yeah, that's strong yeah. him or her, <laughs> right. them. Um, the, they say that there are like some... Like if you accept that there are clear cases where there's not harm, and I think yeah. that's like I think that's clear. Then uh, they say some people have tried to say and this actually made me kind of laugh. We might argue that zoophilia degrades or even violates the agn- the animal's dignity. <laughs> now, d- dignity is a notoriously vague normative notion, especially so for animals. In fact, it is not clear that animals have a dignity in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> then why are you like starting like romantic relationships? With them. If they if they have no is, dignity, you can't you, you know you can't shame them. You can't. <laughs> yeah, well, you um, can't. Yeah, maybe you can't harm them. Maybe you can't. Uh, it, yeah. Their consent wouldn't matter. It's like little things, little dog whistles. <laughs> no, no pun intended. <laughs> in this article, I, I feel like my dog has dignity. Um, I yes. You know, so, Charlie has dignity. I don't know about Omar. <laughs> so right, uh, and then the other thing is sometimes people say that it's a form of exploitation. Um, 
And but but they say like, well, you really have to go out of your way to say what you mean by exploitation um, in this case. Right? Like, yeah. And also like like with something like this, it's like, OK, but is it more exploitation than killing them and eating them or putting sure. them in factory yeah. farms? And, you know, he says yeah. like because that is kind of like if you're OK with like all the horrific things that we do to animals just in factory farms or wherever, it's like like it's true. Like it is weird to yeah. be this opposed to zoophilia and not to immense like avalanche of suffering we cause on billions of them every day. So, yeah. 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 And I think that, that the consent arguments that people usually bring up, like really do fail for most, like for most things we do to animals, not even the factory farm things, because if you, if you really believe that an animal can derive pleasure from sexual contact with a human being, um, then your, and your objection is that they never consented to it then you're sort of opening the door for even keeping animals without their consent is might be morally wrong, right? Like it does seem like you have to have consent they, plus harm. They consent to being kept though. Like, like Omar won't leave the yard. Right. But by that same reasoning, I think like the approach, and this is what they say, like approach behavior, like a, an animal approaching to eat from your hand can be taken as a form of consent. Um, and so, right. Yeah. like for them to engage in those clear behavioral displays of, of consent for sexual behavior, like actually humping you. So here's what I think about this, though. On the one hand, I, there is something completely fucked up about the fact that we cause this much suffering to animals on factory farms to now be like, but what about their consent if you have sex with them just seems bizarre. Like, where, like where, when did you start caring about their consent? Um that this is now an issue. That said, though, I really do feel like if you have like a dog or a cat and, and you're doing this, like there's a moral difference between um, the animal like not wanting to do it and you just yeah. like force them to, to do it and the animal initiating it like with your friend. So yeah. th that can only go so far. Like you're kind of already almost you're only including like pets at uh, of some kind in this sphere of possibly you give a shit about uh, consent. And while you might have problems with that not being consistent, it's not, it still matters, you know? Yeah, but is aren't they arguing that like you just get clear, you get as much consent from some of this behavior as you could possibly expect? Yeah. Um, so that, yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's true. Right. Yeah. But it, even there, then they recognize that. Consent the consent matters because probably they, matters. Yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So we know it's one kind of problem case um, where it's a little hard to get a sense of whether they're aware of what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> consider, for example, the following case. Bob and his dog. Bob loves his dog. Every Friday when he comes home tired from working, he spreads honey on his penis and takes pleasure in letting his dog lick it. I love that he just restricts it to Fridays, you know, like you start doing it like, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays, then. Uh, I'm always worried, by the way, because I've heard of people doing this with like peanut butter. Yeah. Wouldn't the dog start just gnawing? Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> let, especially Omar, anywhere near my penis. <laughs> Bob's dog may not be aware of the sexual character of the activities engaging in, and we might intuitively think that this threatens the validity of his consent. 
this is why you can't trust intuitions you know (laughs) (laughs) you gotta debunk these yeah this would be true if the sexual character of his action were a deal breaker this is perhaps the case but i would like to point out it is far from obvious of course if bob's dog was instead a human coaxed into licking bob's penis say bob told him this was the only way to relieve an itch (laughs) what is that work this is great this is like one (laughs) banger after another like (laughs) the sexual character of the action would probably be a deal breaker so the information condition would not be satisfied and the validity of his consent would be undermined this is so because of the specific ways in which humans typically regard sex so he goes on to say that like we're just weird about sex like there's nothing this there's nothing to indicate that animals would feel that weird about sex um they would just be like who cares if you got off on i got some honey you're anthropomorphizing if you yeah. give them all of our sexual hangups, you know, like you yeah, project exactly. that onto them. Um, I buy that, actually. <laughs> like, I, I do, you know, like just think of like the dogs getting these huge boners all the time. They walk around yeah. the house with their boners. They don't give a shit. And we're yeah. like, oh, Red Rocket. You know? <laughs> red Rocket, Red Rocket. So in the end, we conclude that animals can consent with human to sex with humans. As for the validity of this consent, the gist of my discussion has been that animals can validly consent according to most conceptions except the most demanding ones. And the latter turn out to be unacceptable for reasons for other reasons or to make valid consent unnecessary to engage with sex with animals. Uh, given, given that, having, that sex having sex with animals does not necessarily harm them, we can conclude that having sex with animals is not wrong. With that, the zoophilia is not wrong. Just a mic drop moment there. Right. You know? Boom. Bang, bang. Boom. Bang. I brought you all the way here. Now, <laughs> now, now what are you going to say? <laughs> now go fuck your dog <laughs> with a free conscience. <laughs> and so then, then they turn to the implications, um, which uh, are... One, one immediate implication seems to be that zoophilia ought to be made legally permissible. This entails decriminalizing it where it is currently outlawed and fighting against the current wave of recriminalization. Going beyond mere legalization, and this is where they lose me, we could argue further that zoophilia ought to be socially normalized too. Um, in this case, the next step in the historical process of sexual liberation might well be to accept zoophilia as a legitimate sexual orientation. Zoophilia needs their will and grace. You know, just to get every, <laughs> just to get everybody used to it. Uh, <laughs> that's a lovable boy, isn't he? Yeah, but he has sex with his dog. Yeah, but he's charming. Uh, Look, here's the thing: I can't even get like weed legalized in <laughs> Texas. Like I, like even if I did buy this thing, like that's good. That has to wait in line. You know? Okay, like. Push comes to shove, though. Do you think anybody ought to be fined or imprisoned because they, uh, whatever, let a dog penetrate them? No, or a like horse, a, right? oh no, definitely not. But like, okay. if they like raped the dog, they should. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. yeah uh, there is just any kind of animal. What if they cruelty? were just blowing off steam? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and what if the dog was asking for it? You know. Remember though that professor who was, said he was just blowing off steam. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The Penn, the, uh, Penn State. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, penetration is a like a. I, I think we would need more evidence because because, uh, yeah, there are there are you know did you ever hear about that? There was like a famous case of like I think it was a Microsoft executive who was into this stuff and he was letting a horse penetrate him anally, and he ended up dying from it. 
Because like the horse burst whatever is internal. <laughs> it's like um, grizzly man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you only hear the audio. Um, <laughs> nay. <laughs> um, that, That's what they should. <laughs> nay means nay. There's actually a lot of ways nay you means, go. <laughs> Sometimes nay means yay. Uh, yeah, nay means um, yay. Yeah, <laughs> So, like, letting an animal penetrate you shouldn't be, like, on the face of it, that should be fine. I think the the clear cases are when it's some guy, yeah. If it's your dog, can't you plausibly argue that it's incest? (laughs) Right? Yeah. Especially if you had the dog since they were a puppy. Yeah, right. And, like, you're... (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah i think so you have to do it with like your friend's dog yeah you know? with some strange <laughs> <laughs> dog swap <laughs> don't worry you're my step dog <laughs> <laughs> oh no that's just my step dog <laughs> your step dog is hot really you think so <laughs> This is <laughs> um, so I'm so look, I'm at the point where I think I don't I think it's weird and I don't want a society where people think of this as like a normalized thing to do, like for a lot of reasons. And I think that that the author downplays. Like, I know that there is a clear analogy to people being disgusted at at homosexuality, and therefore you might say, well, if you're going to let disgust guide you, then um, you might do some really immoral things. But there is like a a weirdness to this behavior that I think can't just be dismissed as as bigotry. So the question is, how do we know that we're not just being biased, that uh, we're not just uh, somebody reacting like this to uh, gay people or trans people or uh, a lot of the groups that we now think, well, right. that's it's fine. It's been called In like fact. non-natural and, or whatever. Yeah, it's been called unnatural. I, I do think there is something about like the crossing of species uh, that puts it in its own category. Just the fact that there's all these different, uh, what if the duck quacks twice, but you don't know what kind of quack it is or whatever. Yes, like yes. there's a, there's so many different, like, you know, variables to it that that's like a signal that maybe this is in a slightly different category than just another human being. So when we have two human beings, both insisting that they love each other and that they have a relationship, I think that's just like good reason to respect it. Um, no reason to think that there is coercion or harm going on, or if there is harm, it's like the pleasurable kind. Um, and this, we just, we can't really know. And I don't want to adjudicate what's harm and what's not when an animal can't tell us that they're, that this, that this is harm. Um, and so I think we have good reasons to discourage it, but I will say that the amount of energy put into this seems, it's always seemed ridiculous to me, given how we kill animals to eat them and how we raise them to kill them to eat them like that seems like 
such an obviously more pressing moral problem than this. But it's to be it's not like a lot of people are writing like zoophilia is wrong articles either. It's just that it is illegal, whereas that stuff is legal and often subsidized. So, yeah, no, that's the thing that honestly people are going to look back at at this generation. Somehow you'll get a pass on this particular thing. But uh, uh, people are going to look back and say like these people, they were monsters, like they yeah. knew what was going on in these factory farms and they just did it anyway. So, yes, zoophilia over that. Do you think Fira Benstow is the Penn State professor? Ooh. No, this this is too, this is such yeah. a clear philosopher writing. Yeah, that's true. That guy wasn't a philosopher, yeah. I think a dog wrote this. <laughs> a dog. Yeah, that would be funny. The dog. <laughs> he's also kind of proud it's his first publication, you know. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, we'll be right back to talk about loneliness. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Well, it's holiday season. Thanksgiving is about to come up, and maybe you have some anxiety about Thanksgiving or Christmas, getting together with family. I know I do about this particular Thanksgiving. There are certain things me and a certain stepmother don't exactly see eye to eye on. So at times like this, adding something new and positive to your life can help counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all of this stress and change. It can be something you look forward to. It can help you feel grounded, help you approach whatever potential conflict you might be approaching in a more productive way. And it's not just for holiday season. Therapy can be really helpful for learning positive coping skills, for boundary setting, for feeling more confident, feeling more empowered, being the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash VBW to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Wizards. This is the predictable time of the show where we like to take a moment to thank all of you listeners who've gone out of your way to reach out to us to support us in various ways. I'm going to keep it short today because I want to focus a little bit on one aspect of our Patreon. Um, but if you want to contact us, email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. We read all our email. We don't always answer it. You can tweet at us at Tamler at Peas or at Very Bad Wizards. You can join the Reddit community 
uh, reddit.com slash r slash very bad wizards to get in some arguments and discussions. Follow us on Instagram, give us some ratings on Apple Podcasts, and maybe even some reviews. And if you do join our Patreon, you could do so at a couple of different levels. At $1 and up, everybody gets ad-free episodes and the collections of beats that I've put together over the years. At $2 and up, you get all the bonus content that we release. And that's what I wanted to talk about. On our Patreon, we just did a little bit of work to, well, they have a new feature called Collections, and that lets you basically organize um, the bonus content by any theme in any sort of collection that you want. And right now we have done that with a few things. So our Ask Us Anything audio that all of our uh, $2 and up subscribers get and our video that our $10 and up subscriber get, uh, subscribers get um, are up there. You can find the beat compilations very easily in a collection. We also have all of the movie episodes, or at least from when we started doing Patreon, I will get the rest of them up there somehow. And we have two seasons of The Ambulators and uh, the Dostoevsky series and all of our Borges episodes. So we're going to keep adding to that. Hopefully it makes uh, being a Patreon supporter just a slight bit easier and better. Thank you to everybody, of course, who is our patron. Uh, at $5 and up, just to round this out, you get to vote on an episode topic, um, and you do get access to our Brothers Karamazov series. You get access to some of my intro psych videos and a couple of Tamler's lectures. And at $10 and up, you get those Ask Us Anything videos, but you also get to ask us a question, and we film those once a month. Uh, you can also go and buy swag if you want to support us in that way. You know, holidays are coming up. If you want to get a t-shirt and mug, um, go for it. You'll find links there. Thank you again to everybody for all your support. We really, really appreciate it. And uh, happy Thanksgiving, because I don't think we're going to hear, uh, we're going to release an episode until after Thanksgiving. So yeah, happy Thanksgiving for Americans, of course. I don't know what the rest of you do, but happy Thanksgiving anyway. I'm slamming him tonight. You guys are dead in the water. All right, way to go, Donnie! All right, so this is a topic that we've been wanting to talk about for some time. I think it came up in an AUA from our beloved patrons, and we couldn't get the book, the, the Putnam book, but we did track down the Bowling Alone article, and we've also looked at some other kind of more updated studies and reports. Um, so this is, you know, from an earlier period. This was written in 1995. Robert Putnam is, God, I don't even know. Is he a sociologist at uh, Harvard? He's a political scientist. He's a political scientist yeah. at Harvard. And so he publishes, and it's really about the decline of civic engagement and the decline of social capital. What is social capital? Yeah, like as I understand it, social capital is the network of relationships and associations you have with other people that make that make society kind of run smoothly. And so, you know, I, it's a desire to quantify the 
unquantifiable. Like rather than physical capital, you have and to, right, and to turn it into something like money and property. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. But it really is like the like it's kind of fucked up to have this term that's modeled on like capital, capital, <laughs> and yeah. it, what it is is like social connections that you have. Yeah. You know, like right. supposedly the thing that was the most important that all that capital was like a instrumental <laughs> right. like means to achieve. But here it's like it's it's it goes the other way. So he talks about the decline of civ civic engagement. Voting uh, was down by 25 percent um, at the time in uh, the 90s. So this is, yeah, 1995, the Clinton years. It was kind of a depressing time for politics. Uh, you know, Clinton Dole. It's like, oh, God. do you want to vote in that? Jesus. But then it, it's not just voting. The people who have attended a public meeting on town or school affairs fell by more than a third from 1973 to 13% from 22%. Um, also about people going to a political rally or a speech or serving on a committee at a local organization, working for a political party. By uh, every measure, their di Americans' direct engagement in politics and government has fallen, he says, over the last generation. And this is despite the fact that average levels of education, uh, which are traditionally been the best predictors of political participation, uh, that they have risen sharply throughout this period. The reason he says that he's interested in civic engagement and what affects civic engagement is that he thinks that civic engagement directly affects the quality of a representative government. And so he says, at least that at least was the central conclusion of my own 20-year quasi-experimental study of subnational governments in different regions of Italy. Although all these regional governments seemed identical on paper, their levels of effectiveness varied dramatically. And when he went and looked to see what it was that was predicting the difference in quality, it was just these traditions of civic engagement, voter turnout, how much they read newspapers, membership in societies and clubs. Um, and so the decline of that in the United States leading him in 1995 to think, shit, you know, like our, our, the quality of our government is going to be potentially directly affected by the yeah. decline. I mean, I feel like it's the other way, more likely that the quality of the government go, the, the government goes down. You know, he even says like, you could expect some understandable disgust after Watergate, Vietnam, Iran-Contra, I think he says, um, all sorts of ways in which the government feels like they're corrupt. And also uh, by this time, now that we're in the Clinton years, corporate bought like both parties, you know, uh, turning away from, you know, more than a semblance of pretending that you care about poor people. And not just like lobbyists, you know, right. it just well, seems like, yeah, it's his point, you know, like if only you went to church, maybe there wouldn't be corporate buyouts of political parties. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know how you determine the, the, the direct, causality. the causal drives. If you see, if you see decline in civic engagement before you see a decline in government quality, then that would point to, to the direction going one way. Um, I guess if you have so a good way of measuring yeah, exactly. government quality. But yeah. Um, yeah. anyway, like even if I'm right that people are maybe more legitimately disgusted with politics, he's like, well, it's not just that, you know, right. It's church related groups, labor unions. Again, there's might be a reason for that. Um, labor unions, in fact, 
he says, have been falling for four decades, um, especially between 75 and 85. Um, it, it was at 32% in 1953 to 15.8% in 1992. He says, the solidarity of union halls is now mostly a fading memory of aging men. So, uh, yeah, so there's unions. There's also, like, parent-teacher associations. <laughs> uh, did you ever go to parent-teacher association no. meetings? Yeah. I mean, did you? No. No, I didn't even go to parent-teacher conferences. Yeah. <laughs> we're so we're just too cool to, like, <laughs> yeah. care about our child's education. <laughs> also, I liked this. Fraternal organizations. Yeah. Uh, between the 80s and the 90s, like groups like the Lions off 12 percent, the Elks off 18 percent, <laughs> the Shriners, particularly rough stretch, off 27 percent, the Jaycees off 44 percent, and even the Masons were down 39 percent since 1959. It's like the Masons. The like, Masons, where, you, yeah. Where, is that a, for a healthy society? You need like a <laughs> strong like Illuminati? <laughs> Uh, right. Uh, right. He then says you do find these other groups where um, they like we are participating in more. We do belong to them, but they're the kind of groups where you don't actually have to meet anybody and hang yeah. out with people. It's like uh, he says, like the gardening club is different than the Sierra Club. Um, gar uh, the gardening club is like, OK, we're all meeting and we're hanging out and we're planting stuff, I would imagine. Uh, whereas the Sierra Club is, I give all, this amount of money and get like travel books and uh, <laughs> a bumper sticker for my car. You know, then he also talks about bowling alone. Like, that this is the kind of paradigm case. Like, bowling itself has gone up, but the league memberships have gone down. And so, right. people decreased by 40% um, between 1980 and 1993, whereas the number of bowlers went up by 10%. So here's my question about this. I was surprised that this was like what bowling alone meant <laughs> in this article, not being part of a league. Yeah, I've never gone bowling alone, but I've also never bowled in a league. You I know. know. I I felt the exact same way. And it feels like a sort of trivial uh uh, criticism at what is a paper that's about much more, but your central, the central example, the thing that you title your book about, like I went bowling with my friends all the time. Does he just mean that there is a civic nature of a league that does something to you that's different than bowling with like your three buddies? Um, yeah. I, I was asking myself that same question because on the one hand, like bowling is one of the most social things that I do right. when we do it. Like, like you're <laughs> actually like you're not watching anything or thing. You're all like talking, hanging out, drinking beers, bowling. But when you're doing that, you're with your friends and you could just be yeah. at each other's houses having like dinner or like at a restaurant. You're not meeting all these other people that you don't know and that are probably from different backgrounds and economic back, you know, economic backgrounds, yeah. different just cultural values, stuff like that. So I could see that being a difference between bowling leagues and just bowling with your friends. Yeah. It's not in that. That's one she way. Just in calls which it's called it solo bowling, which is just not. 
That's not inaccurate. A, yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm surprised this wasn't made a big deal because it was like the first like like I was like, wait, no, that can't be right. And then like totally. you know, as I was like googling the book, like I don't remember people really talking about that. Yeah, they just kind of took it for granted. Did they not have the keen eye that we had. <laughs> it's the analytic philosophy training comes in handy. Yeah, that's what it is. Alone I, I, doesn't mean with other people. <laughs> But I do think that's in itself an interesting difference and one that's very much in line with what he's saying is it's not that we all just sit in our house and don't do anything. We don't like to be in groups with, that, with people that we might not know or who might be different from us. And yeah, so it's super interesting as I was reading this. Um, and of course, the data are old and there's you, you put a link to an updated like Bowling Alone 20 years later. Um, but as I was reading this, I was like, all of this stuff sounds painful to me. Like to be a <laughs> member of the Elks Lodge or to like be a, you know, garden club. I, I don't want to do any of that. So <laughs> I, know, I was thinking that, that you would especially, <laughs> I had that. I mean, I am also like that, but like yeah. you, especially like, like you don't want to like, do any of this shit no, serving on like, a committee of a local no. organization. Oh my like God, you, man. Like, like local government, you know, yeah. oh, you couldn't pay me. Um, And I think like, I at least think that I wish I did more of that. But again, you actually (laughs) put me there and I'm like, I get me the fuck out. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I'm going to make you an elder in your local church. You're, you're just like unabashed about it. Whereas I feel (laughs) kind of a little conflicted. Even like, even like, uh, when he was talking about the, um, percentage of people who have hung out with their neighbors in the last mm-hmm. week or whatever. I'm like, I, I say hi to my neighbors <laughs> when we're both getting the mail, you know? Like, I have friends. Why am I going to talk to my, like, why am I going to hang out with my neighbor? <laughs> yeah, you hang out with my, my neighbors. <laughs> I, You know, again, uh, speaking of my neighbors who we don't, like, like hang out with our neighbors hardly at all, but uh, we had this um, big power outage. Uh, like we've had two big ones, one after Hurricane Ike and one after that horrible thing in February where none of us had heat or electricity. And both times we we would all be hanging out outside together, having beers, talking, having a good time. It was like really fun, you know, like, and we were like, I wish we did this uh, more often. I remember after Ike, we got our power turned back on. We were kind of lucky. It was like two or three days into it. And it was a Sunday, and I was like, oh, my God, I can go watch Sunday Ticket. <laughs> you know, like, and I <laughs> right. Sunday Ticket, I just went back, and, yeah, it was just, uh, so, like, that's the, it's, it's true, like, I think he's on to something, I guess. Yeah, I um, think that I, I think that we are the, the generation that came up in these trends, and, like, to me, it's internalized. Uh, my preferences are internalized. Like, I, I get that if I were in the 50s, you know, I would be. It, whatever bowling in the league and all, all all of those things that he describes remind me of like the Flintstones. <laughs> they they bowl in leagues and they're members of the Elks and the Shriners and like all this stuff. Like yeah, I get I get that that I am um a, we we are of that generation that's that came right when this was all eroding. He wants to say that this is uh this is decreasing social capital almost by definition right when you are eroding the nature of these relationships that we have the connections that we have to our neighbors to our local communities social capital goes down and what that means i'm not sure but 
what really interested me about this whole idea is not whether or not, like you were saying, it, it has negative effects on government, but really on whether or not like there is something that's deeply psychologically interesting about the change in society and like whether or not this has had an impact on I don't know, on on the health of us as individuals, on the quality of our relationships, like would we be better off? I don't know. It is like this new experiment. Yeah. I mean, I guess television is the major culprit here. Like once you make it like you can hang out in your house and that's fun or yeah. like it gives you what you need. All right. Now you're not going to the local bar. You're not going to the club. You're not going to bowling league. You're not. Um, but in any right. case, it's got to be like it's fairly recent and like it must have an effect. I bet it has an effect on political polarization that you only hang out with your friends who are more likely to be politically like minded to yourself. So you don't the other people, the other tribe just seems like they're evil or crazy or. Yeah. And know. I think that's why attempts at bringing people together from different political uh, perspectives kind of fail because they there's no good excuse that brings people together like this other stuff was just like it was a side effect of being part of a community that you were exposed to everybody else you weren't like you know yeah. some part of a novel study where you bring republicans right. and democrats into the same room and make them hang out or whatever um, do no, like here you were perspective taking. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Here you were just like your community was dependent on you being able to have a relationship with these people, regardless of what yeah. they might believe. Um, and I think he was like what you're saying about TV. I what I my favorite part of this whole article was the prescience with which he talks about the te the technological transformation of leisure as this sort of like cause of this loss of social capital, lack of civic engagement. He says, there's reason to believe that deep-seated technological trends are radically, quote-unquote, privatizing or individualizing our use of leisure time and thus disrupting many opportunities for social capital formation. The most obvious and probably the most powerful instrument of this revolution is television. Time budget studies in the 1960s showed that the growth in time spent watching television dwarfed all other changes in the way Americans passed their days and nights. Television has made our communities, or rather what we experience as our communities, wider and shallower in the language of economics. Electronic technology enables individual tastes to be satisfied more fully, but at the cost of positive social externalities associated with more primitive forms of entertainment. And then he goes into what is hilarious given what's happening now and given how little it was happening in 1995. The new virtual reality helmets that we will soon <laughs> yeah. don to be entertained in total isolation are merely the latest extension of this trend. Is technology thus driving a wedge between our individual interests and our collective interests? It is a question that seems worth exploring more systematically. The new Google glasses are going <laughs> to like transform the way we interact with the, the, the polis. Yeah. But like in 1995, like I think this is so insightful. In 1995, yeah. we didn't even have, we didn't even know in which ways our entertainment was going to become privatized. And this is this yeah. is one of the reasons that we even chose this article, as are many times mentioning in, like the AUAs, um, that there is something about private streaming services that have allowed people to just hone their own interests and expose themselves to very niche kinds of forms of entertainment and what Putnam thought was privatizing about TV was still compared to what we do now like yeah. super collective yeah we were already just doing it in our own houses is not yeah. 
But at least, like, we were watching the same things, and then when we were, we were at work, we were like, you know, what did you did you see that like Magnum yeah, PI or something? <laughs> yeah. like that, a Cosby show. I miss that. Like, it's not that long ago. It's like yeah. ten years ago. We were still watching, or or like you know, twelve years ago. We were all watching Breaking Bad at the same time and listening to Serial. And now it's like you haven't even finished Righteous Gemstones. Oh, I finished three. It. Finished it. Oh, you did. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so good. Um, yeah, no. And sometimes you're just like, you tell a friend, have, have you watched this show, which in your mind is like the best show on TV right now. And they've never even heard of it. And you're like, never what? heard of it. Yeah. And yeah. it used to be like you had a dinner party and like you could spend the whole time talking about the wire or the Sopranos or, yeah. you know, and that you would pass the DVDs to other people if they hadn't seen it. And like, that's when we really still cared about each other. As <laughs> when we watched friends that it's such an interesting case of of maximizing self-interest, making self-interest more efficient, which is mm-hmm. like a natural thing to maximize on, like um, give people more and more precisely what they want, having this deleterious large-scale effect where yeah. we all might end up worse off because we were all... Self-interested pursu- in this yeah. very narrow sense. Yeah, uh, like a we like a game theory thing, exactly. Like yeah. a tragic uh, comedy of the or tragedy of the com- <laughs> comedy of the tragic Com- comedy of the tragedies. <laughs> Did you look at some like updated stuff? Because obviously these stats are, I think, the same general trend from what I can tell has continued um, for the most part. But what do you find in the more empirical? Yeah, um, so I I tried looking up just loneliness. Now bowling alone really isn't about loneliness so much as it is about about the, the kinds of stuff that might give rise to loneliness. But Sorry I don't know if, if we're the book, going bowling with our friends. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if the book dives into loneliness more, but like this was one of our interests in this topic, which yeah. was, is there, like it really does feel like loneliness has gone up. And you might be surprised, Tamler, that um, the data are mixed. <laughs> but to the extent that, that I have being able to like call through some of the more recent review papers, it does seem like there was definitely a bump of loneliness at during COVID. And um, maybe there's evidence that adolescent loneliness is specifically has increased over time. Um, but it looks like loneliness in general, like by whatever metrics we use to study it longitudinally, which are not that great, um, it seems to be about the same as ever, right? It seems like we there there isn't you can't properly call something a loneliness epidemic given what we know about it. I think it's just become a lot more salient, um, and maybe COVID just actually did make us lonely. Um, well, yeah. NPR says from this Google search that you can call it a loneliness ep- epidemic. Um, and they say that even before the COVID, which I thought I had read, like I didn't write this down. I thought you were the data guy, um, (laughs) but yeah, um, but, uh, that even before COVID, like you just like take, obviously that's going to have a huge effect. And so you just have to like bracket that. But even before COVID, you know, up till 2019 that the, um, uh, I had read that this uh, people were having uh, like huge drops in social interaction, especially among young people. Yeah, did, did, was it about things. loneliness specifically? Yeah. So, if you look at loneliness measures across 
um, North America and other countries, it does seem as if there is uh, some increase in loneliness over time in some countries, but they seem small. Yeah. So this is, I'm, I'll, I'll put a link to this. This is a recent uh, review article looking at meta-analyses of studies of loneliness over time. And, um, and they at least argue that it's not, it's not clear that there's been this trend. I don't know. I, it's, it's really hard. It's hard to measure, as you might imagine. And I, I swear by my own anecdata, and I think you do too, that our students have been like hit hard with what happened to them. Like I was just talking to a student in my office today who was like, I feel like I don't have social support or whatever. It's, it's just hard to know how much is bounced I, I feel back. like this semester actually has been the first return to whatever pre-COVID normal, the first at least sign that that was the way this was going. And I don't know, that's a very small sample size. I don't have that many students this semester, but um, you walk into class yeah. and people are buzzing again instead of just silent and yeah. on their phones. So right. I, I do think it's hard to measure. It's also like when you're talking about social interaction, you know, a lot of the way guys interact now is like video games online, but interactive video games where they're all like talking shit to each other and they're all like they're interacting through the game. Yeah. Which, you know, strikes me as kind of like the maybe like the bowling in a league versus bowling with friends kind of thing. It is different, but it's not necessarily tied to loneliness. It's tied to something else. You know, we didn't prepare for like this specific topic uh, that I'm about to mention, but Jonathan Haidt and others have recently been arguing hardcore that um, loneliness and depression and other mental health metrics have been going up. And they argue that it coincides with the emergence of the smartphone. And so if yeah. you look at the data, like right around 2010, when smartphones might have been more likely to get into the hands of teens. Um, you start seeing life satisfaction go down, loneliness go up, depression go up. I think that there's a lot of debate as to whether or not this is true. Um, and again, it might turn on, on like specifics about the data that they're looking at and like causality. Um, but, uh, but it seems... Doesn't because seem it coincides with the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah, almost exactly. And you you raised this point when we were doing our ask us anything thing that that we're not in a good position to gauge the ways in which our say daughters they interact with each other. Like it seems to us to be like a foreign, distant, you know, non non kind of like loneliness combating ways of interacting but it but that but they're not for them or at least it doesn't seem like they would i mean i will say i'm gratified that her college experience doesn't seem that different than my college experience in terms of just going at, like it's not that uh, uh online focused but you're but yeah the general point is right that like i think we aren't great judges of when they feel connected and when they don't, because sometimes they're just not doing the things that we did to be connected. And, you know, part of me thinks that if you think about it as this is just this general epidemic that's affecting everybody, I think you could quibble with that. I wonder, though, if just the the sphere of a more extreme kind of loneliness, like not like, oh, yeah. she's only texting with her friends and not going to the local 
uh, ice cream shop or, or getting beers and drinking in the <laughs> school parking lot or whatever. Like, it's not just that. It's like, like, no, these are really socially isolated people who spend a ton of time online on like Reddit sites with people they don't know or whatever the sites are. Like, I wonder if just that, that sphere of like clearly lonely people and socially isolated people um, people who don't feel uh, a real connection with anybody, no matter what kind it is, like online or not, like if that, the numbers of those kinds of people have gone up. Right. Again, it could just be that they're now, <laughs> they were always there. It's just like we didn't know about it because they weren't online. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's hard to know. Like, maybe. for instance, like the incel movement, like whether there are more. I mean, I'm sure there are more. I mean, like taxi but, driver, not that yeah, he's exactly yeah, no. that, but it's like, that's yeah. the, like, that was a thing, you know, Holden yeah. Caulfield, like this has always been a, a part of yeah. literature and film. Um, this uh, article in um, Nature, uh, Nature Reviews Psychology, that's looking at these um, like meta-analyses that have been done on this, they, they make a, an important point when, when you're trying to look at data at, on, say, the effects of social media on loneliness, it's actually hard to find effects of s- social media just causing loneliness um, overall. And they say that one of the reasons is because social media like has very different effects sometimes. So they say, first, most macro-level factors influence social relationships and by extension, loneliness through multiple indirect pathways, some positive and some negative. These positive and negative pathways might counteract each other such that the net effect of specific macro-level factors on loneliness is close to zero. For example, social media can lead to more frequent social contact and decrease people's sense of social isolation, but also displace offline interactions and increase online mobbing and cyberbullying, potentially increasing loneliness. So when you combine them, like the effect looks like it's close to zero. And that's true, like lumping together anything online just can't be what's going to yield the the right answer about this stuff because we i think we've seen how social media or at least internet access can actually probably got a lot of people through the pandemic in ways that they wouldn't have been able to get through um yeah and connects us with like old friends i mean like there unfortunately yeah. now that facebook is not like usable at least i don't use it <laughs> yeah. i knew what people from my high school was, were yeah. doing i knew like i i definitely had more interaction with like academic people that i know knew and liked like i kind of miss those days they seem innocent where you would just post stuff normally you would just be joking around with people that you had met at conferences and or family or your like aunt that was i thought pretty healthy uh, yeah. like like this whole thing of facebook like uh like having a politically poisonous a- effect <laughs> is like i like that i never saw that you know people say that about youtube too and like my youtube is like guided meditations and film essays like it's the <laughs> healthiest thing that i do is go to youtube <laughs> uh, totally uh, uh, so like I, I think it is really hard some people use it in a way that's that, that gets you more connected with people and some people go down like terrible rabbit holes um, and it just kind of increases and highlights their isolation. Right. So I think it's a mistake to just, you know, like John Haidt is, is, I think he just came out with a book where he's just like, no, look, it's clear. Don't give your child a smartphone. Like just don't. And I I don't know, like it feels like you are also taking away a large part of their ability to interact with their peers. You know, the philosophy that I had was if, 
smartphones are shitty for you. I want my daughter to be shitty in the same way that her friends are shitty so that like at least she doesn't feel like so different. <laughs> yeah, in the same way I'm shitty. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Drag her down. Uh, yeah, I agree. That was never a tempting thing just because... I, I, you know, like she, she does a lot of funny shit on that phone. Like even just <laughs> us, like just yeah. connecting me to her and like just stuff I know she does with her friends and stuff like that. Like that all seems good. It, it's obviously you don't, she doesn't cut it off at exactly the right point where it's like optimal for her well being. Yeah. She'll, you know, you can, she, she can get lost for, she can lose a couple hours on Instagram or whatever, but. Yeah, You know, it's like, I, I feel like that's a symptom and there's something, if there's a problem, it's deeper than cell phones. Like cell phones just gives this new outlet for something that is already maybe a little bit corrupted or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what, I, what I'm now really curious about, um, given the bowling alone stuff, is, is there really something fundamentally different about the ways that he says we interacted when we were more engaged in this civic kind of stuff. Not, not like, not like our opt in friends, um, like the way that we do it now, our opt in TV, opt in friends. Um, is there something about these kind of communities that you're, that you're forced to be a part of that have any sort of protective effect? And I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but he points out like religion has like religious participation declined, I think he points out, but it's not that people were saying that they were less religious. It's just that religion became this sort of individualized thing. Yeah. Like a pick your own. There was a right. sociologist that, that came up with a term called Sheilaism um, that was a result of a set of interviews that he was doing with people about religion. And Sheila was just one of the interviewees. And Sheilaism yeah. just means people who pick and choose from different religious traditions and like right. make like it their smorgasbord. Own. Exactly. Of, Where yeah. you're like getting the religious part, but you are sidestepping any of the community and tradition and, and really right. responsibility, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, totally. yeah. To, Instead yeah. of going to church, you're doing guided meditations on, <laughs> on YouTube. YouTube, you know, like that's a different, that's a different kind of thing. You didn't mention uh, that slow motion Tom Brady running is probably another popular YouTube suggestion for you. <laughs> I was never into anything involving Tom Brady that wasn't uh, directly on the football. That was field. like deflating balls in slow motion. <laughs> like, like there's this documentary where he like makes out with his kid. Like, <laughs> what? I mean, not makes out, but like gives him like a big old kiss on the lips. Uh, that doesn't like it's not it's not even like a peck. All right. Well, last thing before we wrap up. Um, there is this one idea that Putnam considers, which is that it's uh, like kind of women's lib that's <laughs> causing this. Um, and I think he ends up dismissing it. But the idea is uh, that women used to like be a big part of civic engagement. They had all these, you know, clubs and like, I don't know, Tupperware. <laughs> Stuff. <laughs> Tupperware, Tupperware party. parties, yeah. And uh, no, but uh, like, you know, more PTA involvement, more like women's groups, and all that has gone down as they have been perhaps mistakenly allowed into the workplace. <laughs> and uh, like he kind of says, which I, which I like, like it could be that like that explains also the men's drop, but like it's not like men are all doing like 
half of the housework now right. that women for are sure. working. Right. Yeah. Even if that's true for women that now that they're working they're they have less time to do all this volunteer stuff. Um, that wouldn't explain the men's, but I did wonder if like, it's not just women working. Uh, it's also just men working more. Just everyone just seems to work more now. Yeah. And I like, I don't know what the studies are about like number, like hours, but it seems like the average working American works more hours now. Um, and also the work kind of bleeds into their other time. Uh, to an extent that that might have an effect both for men and women. What did you, what do you think about that? Yeah, it seems like it has to be true that women joining the workforce had an effect on women's civic engagement. And I think it is also true that women just tended to be more, like women are more religious. They're more likely to attend church and do stuff like that. And if you're forced to work and you're just tired, you're less likely to do that. Um, But I do think that that's the plausible explanation is that our leisure time has gone down. Yeah. Like un- just like unqualified leisure. Time yeah. Especially. Yeah. And we're, we're also like, uh, to get back to the other point we're, we're maximizing the efficiency of our leisure time, not just through entertainment, but you think about like, there used to be singles bars. <laughs> like, yeah. There were people would go in like the same city and meet each other. And now that's all been, sort of co-opted by the algorithms um i I do think this has to be the thing it used to be you go home and either you're just going to sit there and like not do anything or maybe listening listen twice a week to your favorite radio program or something um and so like there's just going to be more incentive to go out then than there is now now you can like and especially if that combines with maybe working uh, more hours. By the time you get home, you're already tired. Yeah, the fuck, yeah, you want to throw on a a Veep or a Righteous Gemstones or, like, something that's genuinely, like, funny and good. And it's not just like, oh, man, I don't want to watch Fantasy Island. (laughs) Yeah, uh, totally. Like, that Love Boat I wasn't allowed to watch because I was too little and it was, like, adult-themed. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There was always a lot of kissing. (laughs) Um, I do like at the end Putnam is talking uh, about like what what is to be done and he had this I don't know why but this actually made me um, think highly of him when he says look if we're looking at these overall trends we have to count the costs and the benefits of community engagement and he says we must not romanticize small town middle class civic life in the America of the 1950s In addition to the deleterious trends emphasized in this essay, recent decades have witnessed a substantial decline in intolerance and probably also an overt discrimination. And those beneficent trends may be related in complex ways to the erosion of traditional social capital. We We used to to just meet at KKK meetings. Exactly. Yeah. 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 They reconcile the insights of this approach with the undoubted insights offered by Mankur Olson and others who stress that closely knit social, economic and political organizations are prone to inefficient cartelization and what political economists term rent seeking and ordinary men and women call corruption. You always like when they say like, that's a the Paul Bloom in you. Actually, this bad thing is good. You know? <laughs> well, it's that, you know, what I liked is that he's, he spent, he's spent a, clearly a lot of time arguing for this position, but he, he's like, listen, like I have to admit that it could very well be that like, there are some bad things that I have not, like been paying attention to so he's not like just 
discounting his whole thesis. He's saying there's bound to be costs associated with it. So he's not just built, like, I guess what I like is he's not just building a case with only positive uh, evidence. He's like giving... He's he's not, and he's not alarmist about it. Exactly. In the way, like, you know, it's not like, I don't know, John Height, Gene, Twinge, or whatever, where it's like... Just uh, like t- take your kids' phones and drive it out to the middle of the desert and bury it. Well, and in or fact, your yeah, kid is going to be now that, depressed. Yeah, sorry. Now that you say that, though, like it, the article does read. I know this is like a a journal, but um, but it seems like it's aimed at a popular press, at a popular audience. It does seem like if a paper like this were written now, it would just be more alarmist. But who knows? I mean, like. This is very. This is one where I don't think I can trust my general sense of things. I don't know about if I can trust the studies either. But like, I don't know like like how different even something like you know the alarmism of articles is now compared yeah. to to then. It certainly seems worse. But uh, yeah, yeah, you have this problem that their alarmist ones are shared more. Right. It's not like yeah. we're. It's not like I'm reading every New Yorker article or every article in The Economist. <laughs> New York Review of Books. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, but there's one thing I can say for sure is that if you're going bowling with friends, you're not bowling alone. <laughs> That's so weird, right? I, I, have you seen a single person bring this up in no. anything that you've read about bowling alone? No. It's like a tagline that is actually like not. It's so weird. <laughs> It's so weird. Everybody just takes it to be. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.